Are you hesitating to take the next step in your e-commerce journey? Founder Plus has you covered. With proven frameworks tailored to your business needs for fast results, a supportive community of over 30,000 like-minded entrepreneurs, and weekly live mentorship sessions, Founder Plus is your key to success. Try Founder Plus today for just $1 for seven days and start building your dream business with confidence. You can visit founder.com forward slash start dollar trial or click the link in the description to claim your trial. Hey, Founder Fam, before we dive into another incredible conversation, I want to share something really special with you. Whether you're just joining us or you've been following us since the beginning, you've been a critical part of our community working to change entrepreneurial education. I started Founder almost a decade ago with the mission to provide entrepreneurs access to the world's greatest business leaders. Our goal was to break down barriers to entrepreneurial education, and that's taken us on a journey from Founder Magazine to this podcast and beyond, and today marks the next step in that journey, Founder Plus. I'm proud to introduce you to Founder Plus, which is an all-access pass to each of our online courses and programs and their proven frameworks for success. It puts every strategy we've compiled from world-class instructors at your fingertips while connecting you to a global network of like-minded entrepreneurs. Founder Plus will take your business to the next level for today and tomorrow. So whether you've just joined our family or you've watched us grow from humble beginnings, we're really thrilled to have you join us in this exciting new phase of making the Founder brand and this company the world's best entrepreneurial community to launch and grow your business. So finally, before we get into today's episode, I'm inviting you to come back Check out Founder Plus and go to founder.com forward slash membership. I'm really excited, guys. This is an incredible new evolution of entrepreneurial education. And our mission is really to get as many of these founders that we interview to teach and also give back on the Founder Plus platform and really go more in depth with the knowledge and the experiences and the lessons learned that they're sharing all in Founder Plus. So guys, please go check it out if you're enjoying these interviews. That's it from me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Now let's jump in. This is episode number 424 with Michelle Romanow of the Founder Podcast. What you need is thirst. You need to be a thirsty human. Who is intent on learning. It's a really fascinating, fascinating exploration of human potential. Now. Now. The Founder Podcast. Even the greatest entrepreneurs had help. If you want to learn from the most successful founders on the planet, you are in the right place. Branson, Mark Cuban, Tony Robbins, Tim Ferriss, Ariana Huffington, Seth Steve Case, Gary V, Sophia Amoroso, Barbara Corcoran, Damon John. Learn from the greatest minds in business today with interviews hosted by Nathan Chan. This is not your average entrepreneur podcast. The Founder Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to another episode. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are around the world. Michelle is the investing powerhouse behind Clearco as well as the resident dragon on Dragon's Den. She co-founded and led Clearco to become one of the world's largest e-commerce investors, having invested over $3.2 billion over 7,000 different companies across 10 different countries. They're really pioneering the revenue share capital structure for ad spend and inventory that has been really just copied everywhere around the world. So today we're going to go really deep with her 
on her journey, discover the lessons learned, as well as really what it takes to build something of such significant scale. Please welcome to the podcast, Michelle Romanow. The first question that I ask everyone that comes on is, how did you get your job, aka how did you find yourself doing the work you're doing today? Oh my gosh, how much time do you have? (laughs) Um, So look, I'm a serial entrepreneur. I don't know how to do anything else except build companies, which means I'm bad at a whole lot of things. Um, But I ended up in engineering school because my dad told me I could study as long, anything, as long as it was engineering. So I had an abundance of choice in the early days. Um, It was there I met my business partner, Anatoly, who was like, we got to start brainstorming ideas. We spent all of our time in undergrad playing the game, what's the next million dollar idea? I have spent most of my life brainstorming on new ideas and I can't actually explain how much of my brain power goes into seeking out opportunities and asking questions. So by the end of undergrad, we figure out that worldwide supply of caviar is down by 95%. The world has overfished the Caspian Sea. We win some money uh, doing business plan competitions and we are crazy enough to say no to all of our job offers and move to the East Coast and build a fishery from scratch. Nathan, this is everything it sounds like. Boats, fishermen, my hands knee deep in fish, the whole nine yards. And we actually figured out how to build a pretty good business. And we're selling to all of these high-end hotels and restaurants. And then in a second, everything changed because then I was in the fall of 2008 in the biggest recession of the last 60 years, selling truly the world's most unnecessary luxury product. So that was my intro into entrepreneurship is things worked for a couple months and then they completely vanished. And so I learned very quickly that the world, you know, owes you nothing. Uh, From there, during the recession, I built one of uh, the early e-commerce companies in Canada. It's now a small public company, Um, built another app called Groupon, or sorry, built another app called SnapSaves that I sold to Groupon in 2014. And after that, got this phone call and a producer calls me and say, look, we'd like you to join the cast of the Canadian version of Shark Tank. And I'm like, oh, you have the wrong person. And they're like, no, 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 we have the right person. And I'm like, I'm only 28 years old. And I end up auditioning for the show. I get the role and I feel like I'm the youngest person there, which I was. And I certainly was the poorest person there. And I think as a result of that, I just saw the pitches a little bit differently. Every founder kind of came on the show. They said, look, I'm looking for a hundred grand in seed money uh, and I'm willing to give up 10% of my business. And I was like, well, what are you going to do with that money? And all the founders are like, I'm going to go buy customer acquisition, which is Facebook and Google ads. And I'm going to go buy inventory. And I was kind of like sitting there scratching my head being like, why are founders using the most expensive capital in the world, which is equity, to do something with a fixed return, like buy ads or inventory? So I remember, you know, not asking the producers, thinking about it overnight, coming back. And the next pitch I heard like that, I was like, look, I'm going to do things a little bit differently. I'm going to give you the $100,000 you're looking for. And instead of taking 10% of your business that I'm going to own forever, I just want 10% of your revenue until you pay me back my capital plus 6%. And the founder was like, that sounds like a loan. And I was like, no, 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 it's not a loan. A loan would have a personal guarantee. So I'd take your house if you didn't pay me back. It'd have a lead on your business. So I'd take your business if you didn't pay me back. This is just a rev share designed for your business. You just have to show me your Facebook data. So the founder that day is like, I will definitely take your deal, Michelle, over all the other uh, dragons on the show. That really became the first ClearCo deal. And we invented the category of revenue-based financing doing that. We've now invested more than $4 billion 
in more than 10,000 founders in 11 countries around the world. So it's been pretty crazy the scale we've been able to achieve uh, with that little idea, but that's how I got my start. Yeah, wow, what a great story. Um, and yeah, look, definitely for me with ClearCo, you know, it's, it's an incredible service for founders. I'm curious, like, I'd love to talk about rejection because it's a huge yeah. part of an entrepreneur's journey. And in particular, your career around rejection, like how many no's were you receiving early on in your career as a founder? Like even with your first business around the, the caviar and, and building out that out. And I mean, all the time. You were receiving no's 80% of the time. That's very, very few yeses. And you got to go into every pitch with that same level of excitement and enthusiasm and, and readiness to really get go. Um, so, I mean, even, I think what's even more remarkable is like, even when we started ClearCo. So at this point, I have been an entrepreneur for a decade. I've built and sold a company. I'm on a national TV show. And I have this idea for how I think we can better fund startups based. It's really based on data. That's not based on who you know or where you grew up. And, you know, Andrew and I go to Wall Street and we do, I mean, 200 pitches that people say no to. You know, the rudest ones say, you guys don't understand credit. We're like, no, we're pretty sure this data is going to be more indicative than, you know, using a personal credit card to do small business loans or personal credit score to do small business loans. Um, and uh, that's a lot of rejection. That's a lot of people telling you. And I still remember the guy um, that bet on me originally, this guy named Ali started a fund called CoVenture. He, um, I'll never forget it. I show up into his office and he has a math tattoo, um, like a formula tattoo to his arm. And I was like, Hmm, I think this is my guy. He understood credit so well. He was like, what you guys are doing is truly innovative. Um, they were early in the space. We were early in the space. I think we built each other's businesses in many ways. Um, but it's really incredible. And you never forget the people that took the risk on you in the early days. And out of those 200 pitches, how many said yes? Oh, like none of them. I mean, I had to do 200 to get a yes. It's like, it's that many. It's like that many. It's walking around day after day, pitch after pitch. And everyone is like, I don't get it. Or I don't think so. Or I need more time or the whatever, whatever polite things they say. Um, but there's a lot of rejection along this road. And, you know, in the back of my mind, the only thing I tell myself is like, it doesn't really matter why I'm being rejected. First of all, you have to, you have to make your pitch better every time you have to look at how people are responding. You got to change your answers. You got to figure out other data. You got to figure out things. That's totally true. Um, but you also have to tell yourself the only thing that you can control is your output. And it doesn't matter if people are saying no, because they don't like you or they don't like the business or, you know, their fund doesn't have money or who, who knows, but you just have to do another 20 pitches. That's the only thing I've ever thought of in the back of my brain is I just have to increase my output. And were you always born with this kind of positive mindset, this relentlessness, or was that cultivated over time? Or That is the price you have to pay to do this job. There is no elevator. You've got to take the stairs and rejection is a very big part of this job. It is not in the corporate world, you can move up the ladder and feel like you are perpetually good at something and you just need to incrementally improve. This is a job where you are a boxer and you go in the ring every single day and you get a black eye and you wake up the next morning and your eye is bloody and black and you walk back in and you're like, I'm ready for round two. And you have to do that day after day after day. And that is truly what it feels like. It feels many days like I'm walking around with a black eye or two black eyes um, because there is a lot. 
So was I born with that? Um, I don't know. I'm a pretty determined person. I don't like to lose. I think I'm naturally pretty competitive, but it takes a lot to be okay with this level of rejection. And what you need to do um, practically is you need to have a really good team around you because you need to be constantly improving. Little incremental improvements in your pitch, in your product are actually what gets you there. You need to be around people that are just as relentless as you in terms of trying and, and figuring new things. I think the hardest challenges we solved at ClearCo were challenges we had for two or three years. I mean, some of these things, we tried six attempts at getting them and then we like broke through and got them right. And it was like, yes, we did that. But people don't remember that it took, you know, six or seven times for us to figure out some of these things. Um, and then you need a circle of friends. And this is why I think entrepreneurs really do need to be friends with other entrepreneurs because they there's very few people that live this level of rejection. And there's lots of hardship and lots of other careers. I mean, I'm not a doctor. I don't see people die on my table. I'm not, you know, I, I'm not a lawyer and I don't see horrible things happen to people. So I'm not comparing it or saying it's better than worse. What it is, is it's just people that understand how much rejection and remind each other of like, oh my God, it felt like for years, this wasn't going to work or for years, this company wasn't going to go bankrupt. And then I figured it out and it all ended up being okay. But it, it takes a lot. And what advice would you give to founders to, to build that self-confidence and to keep going? Like it is what it is and it's part of the job, but is there anything that you do to cultivate that or what advice would you give? I think the first piece of advice is you have to be really careful on who you take advice from. So my first piece of you know, thought on that is you don't want to take advice from people you don't want to be. It's really funny sometimes people will be like, and it and it truly applies to anyone in their life, right? You know, their their dad will give them a terrible piece of advice, or you know, an entrepreneur that hasn't, you know, built much success will give them a piece of advice. And it's like, I really try and take only advice from people that I want to be. If I want their job, they're gonna know how to do that. And it's not, it's actually about only that person knows that path on how to do that. And so you have to be limited because investors give you all sorts of contradictory advice. I mean, when you do a hundred pitches, you hear a hundred different ways on how to run your business uh, from people that are not running your business every day. So sometimes there's some very good nuggets and some things to take away and places to improve, but you got to be careful where you do also want to take advice from is your customers. Those are people that are actually going to pay for your product. They are going to be the ultimate people that are going to build your business. They are going to be the people that determine if your business succeeds or fails. And so I think it's being selective because if you listen to the world around you, there's just a lot of noise. There's a lot of doubters. There's a lot of haters. Um, there's a lot of people that don't want you to probably be successful. But if you choose on the couple of people that you really respect, take their advice um, and then take the advice from your customers. Maybe the last story I can tell you on building up relentlessness is this is a muscle and you truly do build it. And I call it like, there's at some moments you start to feel invincible and that's a very good feeling. So early on in my career, when I was running an e-commerce store, um, we had a deal that went really sour. And so we sold a bunch of product, the vendor didn't um, honor the product. And so we had already paid the vendor for half and everyone was coming to us asking for refunds. And so this created a huge, huge, huge problem, incredibly stressful. Um, and I remember um, getting a phone call from PayPal, who was our payment processor at the time. And they're like, oh, we want to let you know um, that you're actually personally liable for all of the money you've processed through us. 
And I was like, well, how much is that? And they're like a million dollars. And I was like, I'm sorry, I don't understand what that means. And they're like, we could ask for a million dollars back from your personal bank account. And I remember it was like me and my co-founder on the phone and there was four PayPal lawyers. So I knew they were dead serious. And I, um, I remember knowing that I had $10,000 in my bank account. And so there was no possible way I could pay a million dollars back for this. And so every day I just had to go into the office and try and fix the problem. And every day I wanted to go home and uh, I wanted to just die. It was so terrible. I was like, I'm going to lose my company. I'm going to lose respectable of my employees. Um, it was awful. Every night I would wake up at three in the morning with cold sweats and wouldn't be able to go back to bed until 6 a.m. And I was always very angry for at PayPal for invoking this personal guarantee. It's one of the reasons that Clearco has no personal guarantees uh, for founders on our products. Um, and I eventually, we made it through the crisis. We were able to survive. Um, you know, we managed all the customer issues. And I never forget, I was probably 26 years old when this happened. I would never forget how I felt after that. I literally felt invincible. I was like, someone quits. I was like, yeah, I can deal with that. I was like, macroeconomic conditions change. I was like, I can deal with that. I'm like, someone doesn't like me and they're writing something me on the internet. I was like, I can deal with that. I almost lost everything. And so after you make it through these really tough business situations, you grow and gain a muscle that I think is really powerful. Um, that makes you, that makes you a whole lot stronger. And you couldn't even pay for those lessons right? And those lessons, imagine how much that's been worth to you. Probably hundreds of millions of dollars, right? Yeah. I mean, because you, you often, I mean, like business, you, you turn all the time. Sometimes someone's bullying you. Sometimes you have the power in the relationship. Sometimes you don't. Um, but no, you can't pay for those lessons. You have to live them yourself and you have to understand that you can always rely on yourself and you often cannot rely on very many others. Let's talk about ClearCo and the funding process. Um, what are some of the biggest challenges that you think founders face when like navigating the funding and financing space? I mean, it's a space that wasn't designed to be founder friendly to begin with. And it was designed with humans, meaning other humans. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that just adds a lot of bias to the space. So look, if you went to Harvard or Stanford, it's not hard for you to raise venture capital because your classmates, um, half of them became VCs. And so you have a network of people that are willing to fund you. Um, and if you have rich parents and came from a background with a lot of privilege and a lot of money, it's also not hard to get funded. But I'm a big believer that the best founders in the world didn't grow up with silver spoons in their mouth. They didn't come from fancy schools. They understood how to build a business and they had a lot of this grit and resilience built into their stories growing up. Um, and so you know, our model was like, we'll just look at your data. We won't care. We don't care about your pitch deck. We don't care who you are, where you grew up, where you went to school. You know, you show us uh, what your sales are, what your unit economics are, how much you're growing. And then we can decide if we can fund you in 20 minutes or less. And what's remarkable, Nathan, about that is I just thought that was a faster way for founders. Because the other thing that happens to founders is fundraising is a huge time suck. I mean, even the best fundraisers take three to six months. You have to do a hundred meetings. Like I, I'm not, I, I'm not using a round number as a hundred. Like in all of our series A, B, C, D, I think we did a, about a hundred meetings each. Hundred meetings gets you twenty people interested, gets you you know six five people to a term sheet, and then gets you you know a competitive offer that you can close on. 
but you don't operate your business at all during that period. You just do pitches and diligence and control. That all takes so, so long. And so, you know, we invented this data-driven model thinking it would be faster, which it was. We would have more accurate data than having, you know, um, founders pull individual spreadsheets of all sorts of data requests. And what was fascinating to me is when we looked back at our portfolio, it was so much different than what was happening in venture. I mean, we had backed 25 times more women than the venture capital industry average, which to me was shocking because we didn't do anything special to source women founders. They just appeared in our portfolio when you use data to make those decisions, which tells you a lot about you know, how much bias is in the system. I mean, in the US, we backed a founder in all 50 states. That doesn't seem impressive until you realize that 80% of venture dollars goes into four states in America, Texas, Massachusetts, um, California, and New York. And there was nine states last year that had zero companies that got venture funding. It's the same internationally for us. I mean, in the UK, 70% of our companies are outside of London. When you look at the VC numbers, 90% of VC dollars in the UK get deployed in London. And you know, a third of our founders are BIPOC. Um, and the one that's always the most impressive to me is that a quarter of our founders did not go to university or post-secondary education. And I think this one is just so important because what makes you good at business is understanding you can buy something for five bucks and sell it for 10 and really not overcomplicating a business beyond that. I think I always say to my team, whenever something feels too complicated, it's probably either too good to be true or something else is happening. Um, but complexity doesn't make for good businesses. Simplicity makes for good businesses. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode and learning a ton. As you know, in this series, we interview some of the greatest founders of our generation to find out how they did it. However, if you're thinking of starting your own business and you want to hear from some incredible stories from everyday people like you or I who are actually in the trenches, only been building their business for maybe one year or two years, like that are building right now and they're really in the early stages, but they're getting success, you should come and check out our new podcast from Zero to Founder hosted by our community manager, Molly Flynn. These are in-the-trenches stories from our very own successful students that have gone through some of our programs. People just like you who are deep within the process of building their very own successful business. These are the founders of tomorrow. You can find the From Zero to Founder podcast on all platforms. And remember, it's founder without the E. All right, now let's jump in the show. So when it comes to... I guess, uh, receiving pitches in Dragon's Den, uh, so non out of financing with Clearco. So you're not looking, well, you are looking at the data, but you don't have like an algorithm and, and stuff like yeah. that. Um, what do you look for in founders that you back? Or is it just so the data? Do equity. Yeah, so I, I still do a very, very data-driven approach, um, especially for e-commerce companies. Unit economics matter to me the most. And you know, we've proven time and time again with more than 10,000 investments that that, uh, you know, makes a huge difference. Um, you know, for equity investments, my formula is really, really founder driven. And it's exactly what I talked about on that analogy of like being in the ring and can you get that black eye? I mean, and Shark Tank and Dragon's Den don't do a good job of this because they make it a lot seem about the product and the pitch and the pricing it is today. And so you're kind of there and you're like, I don't know, do we like this new cup and it's sold at 4.99 and is this the right market and is this market big enough? And the better assessment I found of businesses are who are going to be the founders that are going to be completely relentless. 
um, because that is what it's going to take. You can look at the margins and the current business model, but so many things are going to change. And the founders that are going to be capable of pivoting and adapting are the ones that are going to build big, big companies. You know, when we started ClearCo, the original mission was to build a bank for the new economy. But our first product was for Uber drivers. We, we did, you know, a year working. We had built a, you know, an API at a partnership with Uber. Couldn't, you know, get the unit economics on that to work. Then our second product was funding Airbnb hosts. And we had done like $30 million um, in that space. And we had just were running this e-commerce experiment in the background, kind of based on my Dragon's Den story. But it took three tries even as someone who had founded six companies before this to get it right. And so being able to pivot as a founder and change and not be married to your old idea, even when customers you know, don't really like it or are not really showing major traction, like that is what it takes to be a very good founder. I'd love to go a little deeper on the things you look for for founders. So we talk about this resilience, this relentlessness. What else? I mean, that's like going to be the, the number like one, two, and three thing. Maybe okay. So I'll give you a couple, couple other other notes on on pitches. I think the founder and their relentlessness is probably the most important. Um, the second thing I look for is um, is business models that are truly win win. And so when both sides of the equation work, when you have a business that just has a margin where one person. Um, is not benefiting, but it, it becomes very difficult to preserve that because as you get new people coming in, you get margin compression on that. So, you know, I'll give you a couple examples of this. I saw a business on, you know, Dragon's Den a few years ago that I invested in called RV Easy. And they just said, we're going to build the Airbnb for RVs. And Airbnb isn't going to do this because, you know, a motorized vehicle is more complicated. There's a whole insurance piece. It's really tough. But, you know, in Canada alone, there's like 2 million RVs that people use on average for one week a year, that the market is 10 times that in the U.S. So this is a perfect asset to be shared. And so that's a that's a great example of a business model where everyone wins. The folks that own the RVs win because they make all of this incremental revenue that they would, you know, usually not make. Um, and all of the renters win because the rental companies before this, you know, were terrible. Customer experiences were super expensive. There was almost no choice. Uh, everything was sold out six months in advance. Um, so I think that that's probably, uh, you know, a, a great model. I mean, it's the same thing with, you know, ClearCo. We we created a model where, you know, we can get capital to founders very quickly, but then those founders can make money on our capital very quickly. Because when you know that you can buy a piece of inventory and it's selling off your website right away, as soon as you get our capital, you can deploy that, you know, almost instantaneously. So you have to look for business models that really have win-win on both sides. So they, you don't get this arbitration behavior down. Um, and the second mechanic in a business that's really important, and it's really hard to understand unless you've been a founder, is that you have to start your product starting with a single niche, and it has to be big enough that you could grow into a much larger TAM. And you actually make the mistake because most founders are like, well, this has to be a big TAM to begin with. I'm going to make a product that works for everyone. Well, if you make a product that works for everyone, you're never going to get a flywheel of a single industry going. Like the way that ClearCo had to work is we had to start with e-commerce founders that were a certain size and a certain scale in a certain country. And once we got that going, we could expand that, you know, a ton. But we had to be very focused in that early phase. I'd love to talk about the recession that we're heading into. What's your take? So economists are wrong 50% of the time. So I try not to be an economist. Um, 
but I think we're headed for, you know, we've been on a 13 year bull run and things have definitely gotten overheated in lots of categories. And we're probably going to, going to really feel, um, this recession. And so what, what do you have to think about? I think the first thing is you have to remember that, you know, good companies are built during bull markets, but incredible companies are built during bear markets. Bear markets allow you to do things for a lot cheaper. You don't have the same wars on talent. You don't have the same pricing wars that happen with competitors. I mean, there was so much behavior in the last couple of years. That's like, okay, we'll just fund one company with a hundred million dollars and another company with a hundred million dollars and the consumer will get everything for free for the next five years. Like no one really wins at this. I mean, you, you see Uber here, you get an Uber now and it costs you exactly what a taxi cost you seven years ago. Right. So it's like, wait a second, that's what the cost of the car and the gas and the driver costs. So we're now pricing at market rates, but we did effectively, I don't know, seven years of very, very deep discounting um, to try and acquire consumers, which was all kind of in some ways wasted at the end of the day. So I think the first thing mentally is that as a founder, you have to remember that building during a recession, build do a very, um, you know, dynamic, unit economic forward company that is really set up to be far more resilient than companies that start and are really built during bull markets. And so I am, um, I mean, look, I got my training in a recession. I, I, you know, I had my first company, as I talked about the caviar business didn't work because of the 2008 recession, I built, you know, all of Bytopia and, um, and what is now emerged as we started doing rollups of e-commerce companies in that period of time. And you just learn to be so much more efficient. Entrepreneurs have to be the kings and queens of doing more with less and figuring out how to beg, borrow, and steal to kind of, you know, get get things done. And so I'll give you a really acute example. Um, when we were running the e-commerce company, I remember we needed whiteboards in our office. And I remember Googling them and they were like 500 bucks a whiteboard. And I was like, that's like egregious. So, you know, one of the weekends, me and my co-founders went to the hardware store and we bought, you know, a panel of wood and a bucket of um of whiteboard paint. And we went back to the office and we painted six of our own whiteboards. And, you know, we drilled them into the wall and those were our whiteboards and they worked just fine for seven years. And that cost us, you know, I don't know, 200 bucks to build six whiteboards as opposed to $3,000 to buy them all. And I think in the last 13 years, nobody has contemplated uh, building their own whiteboards. And it's not about whiteboards and it's not about the size of that expense. It's about the creativity on what you can do. The other thing we bought in that hardware store that day was a box of sidewalk chalk. And I remember, you know, I get founders that complain to me about the price of Google ads or Facebook ads going up. And I'm like, you guys get got to buy ads. When I was early, I was like, ads are too expensive for us to buy. And so what we would do is at night, we would go outside every office building that looked like it had more than 500 employees. And in sidewalk chalk, we would write our deal of the day. And then we would write, you know, come to bytopia.ca. And I got so many phone calls and emails that would like, stop defacing my property. You can't write on the sidewalk. And I was like, you guys can't be that mad. This is like sidewalk chalk. It will wash off in the rain. Um, and we got tons of early customer acquisition through sidewalk chalk. Uh, but it was a zero cost, you know, customer acquisition. And uh, so those were the kind of things that we thought about it in the early days that made a really big difference. That's gold. Because I think so often, especially during bull markets as well, you can get complacent and you can get spoiled as well. Yeah. Like, you know, you look at look paid advertising, things have really shaken up there. A lot of businesses yeah. have to diversify now. You know what I mean? And so, 
yeah, re recessions is, is what really helps you build that resilience muscle as well and really helps you as a founder. Once again, we talk about those lessons, like, like, like how much would that lesson be worth to you, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a lot. It, it, because you, there's so much of building a company and just managing your own emotions that's driven by greed and fear. And, you know, greed, you can kind of control because you have to do so much as a founder and it's so delayed when you get paid out and it takes so many years. So like, ignore that one for a second, but the fear is very real and very, very persistent. And the nice part about having some of these lessons you've learned to is you can be a whole lot scared when you see this market. And I've told my team this, you know, a dozen times in the last couple of months, I'm like, we are in a recession. This is going to be different. We have to focus on a series of different things and we have to move very quickly. So you can't say things like, oh, I wish we were in where we were six months ago. And, you know, I wish that the markets had changed and I wish, you know, I don't have enough time to make a plan. I'm like, yeah, there is no time to make a plan because we have two weeks to execute. And companies that move very, very quickly during recessionary environments do very well. Um, but you have to build that muscle. And I literally just go back to what I know from my early days. And uh, all of those instincts are still there. Mm, yeah, awesome. Um, let's talk about Dragon's Den and then work towards wrapping up. What's the one thing of being on the show that you didn't expect that you've experienced? I mean, I didn't, I didn't know what it was going to be like to be a celebrity. Uh, and it's a, it's a weird and wonderful experience some days. I mean, people will come up to me in bathroom stalls and they'll pitch me their idea. I've heard us pitch in every, uh, in every corner of the world, I think. So, I mean, that was one thing I didn't expect. Um, you know, I have become so close with so many of the founders I've backed. I mean, you come to my birthday party now and it's like a series of companies that I invested in early on. And some of these are just such wonderful friends. They've been to tons of my founders' weddings. Like it's, um, it's really cool to be able to build that network and to be able to share some of the successes uh, together. I've had founders that I've invested in the show that have written books that I've, um, you know, help write the forward for it. Like, it's just a very cool environment uh, because I think when you're a founder, it's your, it's your obligation to give back. This is a hard job. The, the next generation doesn't get to do this unless they understand that there is a big crowd that is cheering for them um, to get through this. And it's definitely worth it because, you know, founders build the world that we want to live in. And I really, and they are more effective than almost anything else we figured out in society, right? I use this example, but I mean, you look at, um, a big, you know, hairy problem like climate change. I mean, God, it's been the engineers and the, the entrepreneurs that have built cars and trucks. People want to drive that are electric. It's been the Nest thermostat. It hasn't been governments that have made these changes. It's been founders. Um, and so people should feel incredibly inspired to do this work and incredibly inspired to build something on their own, even if it's um, incredibly difficult just because of the sheer impact you can have on the world. What about regrets? Any regrets, any pitches you've passed on? Oh, God, yeah. So I call regrets the game of should have, could have, uh, should have, could have, would have. And the only way that game ends is in depression. I have lost so many things. I mean... I remember finding a um, a domain in the early days. Uh, this is a funny one. Um, and I was like, oh, no, we shouldn't buy that. It was like $12 at the time. I'm sure the domain is worth like millions of dollars now. Passed on that. Passed on early Facebook shares. Uh, on the show, I remember I didn't get this deal called Smart Sweets, uh, started by a girl that made uh, sugar-free gummy bears that I absolutely loved the taste of the product. 
And, um, you know, she ended up selling the company a couple of years later for $400 million to TVG. Incredible success story from the show. Incredible founder. Um, so I've missed out on a lot of deals. There's no question about that. But I think, you know, there's a little bit of, of understanding your regret and learning from it a little bit. But there's also like, you know, you... Um, you get what you're looking for. And so I spend, and I, I think we started this way. I spend most of my time thinking about new ideas and new opportunities and me and my closest friends and me and my business partners are constantly talking about, Oh, is that a good business? Is this shifting? You know, if I ended up, you know, sitting next to you in a train and you ran a, a waste disposal business, I'd be so interested in like, how does garbage work? And why aren't we recycling more? And how does this, the economics of this work? Like, you have to be deeply curious about the world of business. And it's very genuine. I'm genuinely just a very curious person because many of the things we do in society have nothing to do with the right or rational thing that we should have done based on all of the knowledge that we have today. We typically do things because of just historically something happened in a certain order in a certain way. And so when you have the ability to challenge that and think about that, it opens up just a ton for you. I'm curious as well, just before we work towards wrapping up, uh, we've got something called the hot seat where we go rapid fire yeah. questions. Any final advice for listeners or viewers? Be a founder. It's the most rewarding job in the world. You, I cannot believe uh, the impact I've been able to see in both the people that I've worked with um, and the products that we've built. I, uh, I have a really cool, cool story. We were, we were pretty early on and we were the first kind of fintech company along with a company um, that did credit cards in, in the U.S. to launch you know, major scale products for founders that didn't have personal guarantees associated with them. And I talked about why this was so important because it's so punitive if a company comes back and says, look, I'm not only taking your company, I'm taking the money out of your personal bank account. And I remember the fall that Amex launched their first card without a personal guarantee for founders. And we were like 70 people at the time. And I remember just being like, we did something important enough that a Fortune 50 company had to respond. And capitalism is not perfect, but this is where it wins every single time. We built something that wasn't just our product was better for founders, but other products became better for founders because they had to respond to that level of competition. And so, you know, that's why you should do this job because you get to have impact far beyond what your company um, and your employees are going to build if you really have that determination to do so. And so this is hard. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to have a lot of black eyes. You're going to feel a lot stronger and a lot more invincible as a result of that, but it's a pretty incredible way to live a life. I agree. I agree. All right, we'll move to the hot seat round. Um, Okay. First question, if you could go back to your first day in business and give yourself one piece of advice, what would it be and why? Don't sweat the small stuff. Make decisions way faster. There's very few irreversible decisions. So if it's a reversible decision, move very, very quickly. I overthought everything in the early days and I could have moved way faster. When is work fulfilling? When you build something from nothing and you see it in the market and you see people using it. I still remember the first time I saw someone use SnapSaves my app in a grocery store. And I just was like, so thrilled. You can put something into the world that didn't exist before. And that is one of the most fulfilling parts of this job. 
What's the best piece of advice you've ever been given? Start now. There's never a perfect time. You're never ready. You never have all the information. Um, just get going. It's like a swimming pool. You just have to jump in. It's going to be cold. And as soon as you get in, you're going to start treading water. And that's how you start building a business. What's something you've learned today? That I can always become better at negotiating. I consider myself a decently strong negotiator and I'm still learning things that can make myself stronger. Last question. If you could have dinner with any entrepreneur, dead or alive, who would it be and why? Probably Benjamin Franklin for just the, just the depth and breadth of all the things that he built. Awesome. Well, look, thank you so much for your time. This was an incredible interview, Michelle, and uh, it's great to connect. Really big fan of your product. And uh, yeah, thank you for all that you do for founders. That's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Hey, guys, I hope you enjoyed this interview. As you might already know, our mission at Founder is to help tens of millions of people every single week with our content, either start or grow their business which is exactly why we're partnering with world-class founders such as Damon John, Alexa Von Tobel, Greta Van Riel, and so many more to teach crucial skills such as negotiation, finance, e-commerce, and so much more. So if you'd like to get access to these free exclusive trainings, please go to founder.com forward slash free. These are 100%. We go super in-depth on teaching a particular topic And I know that you're going to love them if you enjoy this podcast. So just go to founder.com forward slash free. All right, guys, I'll see you in the next episode.